0: when it comes down to how people actually vote how they buy it it's more important how they feel if you can interpret how they feel about things along the way you're going to be a lot more successful
1: stand by. I'll be right
2: there hello and welcome to Minter dialogue episode number 375 today is sunday the 31st of may 2020 My name is Minter and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Josh Bratton, Josh's CEO of Brand Data, a brand measurement and growth marketing consultancy. Josh has created the Marketing is Broken weekly web series and is chairman of America's Internet Super PAC that is focused solely on online rights and internet liberty issues in the US. In this conversation, we discuss the meaning of brand today, why marketing is broken, how to unlock insights and some solid tips and tricks for marketers who want to break through. We also discuss Josh's journey in creating a super pack, a fascinating interview. Josh Bratton, great to have you on the show. You are a, a master of making videos, I must say. Thank you. you CEO of Brandish Insights. I kind of wanted to say Brandish Insights with double a's like the actor Josh Bratton, double A in there. That's right. In your own words, Josh, tell us who you
0: are. Absolutely. So Josh Bratton, CEO of Brandish Insights, and uh, we help to measure and grow brands. I started working in digital marketing about uh, 10 to 15 years ago and really got pulled in on the brand side. So now really help to um, help companies and brands grow sitting at that intersection of digital marketing and brand marketing So
2: a topic I love brands Let's start with what does what's the meaning of a brand today for you
0: I think there are a lot of different ways to define a brand I think you know philosophically it is the combined collection thoughts feelings experiences that a person has about a product or service so it's the overall mental bucket that they put all everything they know and feel about a company or a product or service um, you know functionally as it relates to a company it is the you know combination of uh, operations campaigns strategies plans etc that all collectively work together as a unit uh, to make the company money and
2: How do you feel that the substance of brand has evolved over, let's say, at least your 15 years, but in general, how would you think of how and why branding has changed?
0: Sure. I think there's a lot of things that I think have been almost forgotten uh, that have, that has historically been known by marketers. And so... In you know, starting in the early 2000s with digital, and especially within the last decade or so, you've had this kind of shift of money away from traditional media, television, moving more and more into digital. With that, the kind of the knowledge, the culture around uh, marketing teams as a whole has kind of shifted, and. In the past, you would have these advertising and creative kind of teams and units where you would have insights and that would go into the, you know, the uh, copywriting and the brand advertising kind of planning process. And then you'd go and you would place that into media and all, there was that wonderful, you know, unit or that working structure in today's fast growing consumer brands and startups those teams just don't necessarily exist anymore because they're focused a lot more on growing brands quickly through demand generation. And so you're seeing a lot more numbers focused teams. You're seeing people in charge of the brand effectively who historically have not been in charge of the brand. And so you're seeing people who manage paid search. You're seeing people who are executing programmatic media. You're seeing people that are putting together content strategies these folks effectively have as much or if not more control of brand now in a company than in the past. And that type of shift, I think, has changed the way that companies should look at brand and the power of brand to grow the company.
2: What makes what that makes me think of, Josh, is is the role of advertising agencies. In my experience, when I was working for L'Oréal, we would have these large advertising agencies, to name them, Publisys, uh, for regularly. And they would feel like they were the bastion of the brand. They were the keepers of the brand, because in the business, we would just roll through and career move to here, from there to this and that. Whereas the advertising agency was supposed to be the the, the flag standard of the brand be that as it may let's say i feel like the the role of the agency has also changed dramatically and and moving into digital for some reason maybe it's related to their inability to find a business model that works for them but their their challenge of keeping the brand alive through a monetizable digital channel has become harder sure
0: yeah i think i think part of that um and obviously i Only have my own perspective and I'm only one part of you know the marketing community but what I've what I've seen in my tenure is that uh, marketing has gotten closer and closer to revenue in the last 20-30 years and I think as a result it's it's now required of brands to be more uh, productive from a revenue perspective. And so as you see the, the title of the CMO starting to give way to the chief growth officer, and that person is now in charge more and more of both marketing and sales and given you know, opportunities to manage and govern what happens in operations and customer experience and within product, it's showing that it's the brand is not just about image. It's now about... Experience. It's now about delivering, um, not just through advertising, but operationally and with every touch point that the customer sees. And so I think you're going to see that it's no longer, you know, the, I guess, the luxury of the advertising agency to be the, you know, the keepers of the brand. That is now, I believe, firmly on you know, whoever has the function of growth within a company, and in many cases, that is the marketing function. And so uh, it's, it's almost now more of an imperative that that, that brand also produces growth. And, and so it, it it's kind of like, that's, that shift has mm. been required. Mm.
2: Your web series, uh, Josh, is called Marketing is Broken. <clears throat> Why mm-hmm. is marketing so broken?
0: I think the, the 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 reason that I named the show that was because I've come out of I would say about a you know five to six year period of watching what's happening in the startup community where uh, the brands that are the most successful are the ones that are defining and creating categories that consumers love. They're they're delivering fully on the experience that they in the brand promise that they um, that, that, that it, that they've, you know, told customers. And ultimately though, they're being measured solely on ratios like lifetime value to customer acquisition costs. And so, so many of the brands that I talk to, especially in the startup space, they're saying, you know, we, you know, everything, all of our branded campaigns, you know, the stuff at the bottom of the funnel, it converts very, very well. And we, you know, the revenue mechanics are, uh, or the optics or the unit level uh, economics are amazing. And yet once we start getting into brand spend or awareness spend or you know even stuff in the consideration phase or heaven forbid stuff that helps the current customer, uh, those are the types of things that are harder to to kind of justify in today's marketing, Measurement landscape, and so I think we've overcorrected away from some of what historically has worked on the psychology, the consumer, um, you know, uh, voice of customer on that side of marketing. We've kind of lost that as we've gotten digital, and and what's really required is a combination of both. Yeah. So from what I
2: hear is we're squeezing every last penny down at the get get new customer level but going back and and thinking bigger picture, values of a company, awareness of a company. So we, we've basically stopped investing up top in awareness and uh, thanking being generous to customers.
0: Yeah, I think we've definitely gotten away from that. And part of the reason why I think that is, is because we've removed the customer from a lot of our metrics and so at the top of the funnel you know instead of you know understanding we now you know how many consumers actually understand that this brand exists and is out there we have removed so many layers of the customer that now we're simply talking in terms of like impressions or share of voice on social media uh, those are kind of hollow metrics um, same with you know some of your you know, current customer metrics. Um, you know, people are looking at it in terms of uh, maybe very myopically in terms of task completion or something at a web page level or a product level, but they're failing to kind of collectively pull that together and say, are we delighting our customers? Are we, um, you know, are we spreading in the category the way that we should be? Uh, we don't really have a ton of good metrics um, in our Digital focused measurement, uh, you know, mentality to to kind of look at those things as well.
2: What strikes me as peculiar, and and I, I must comment how how I smiled when I saw in your profile the how you like to cook. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, let's say a visceral personal experience cooking and buying food for from the market and doing on. All- So what I'm saying is that you are a marketer and you have a personal life and you actually operate as a customer, consumer outside of the time that you're dealing with clients. So much like anyone in a business, well, they actually probably did things in the weekend, like go to a restaurant, buy food, stuff on Amazon, so on. And and yet there seems to be a divorce between me, the customer. And when I put on the proverbial tie, go to the office, I completely forget what it's like to be me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think a <clears throat> couple things that, number one, we're able to um, politicize things in the office very easily. And so if I have an experience as a customer and that might throw one of my you know colleagues across the business under the bus, it becomes a sensitive topic and nobody mm-hmm. really wants to address that. Um, also, it it is easy for people to, you know, Put themselves into, uh, or first of all, it's easy to ignore the customer. Uh, working as a as a marketer, it's even um, easier to think you understand the customer. Uh, but it's harder yet to actually walk in the shoes of that customer or be that customer. And so I think that you know there's a couple reasons that prevent mm. us from acting like a customer as marketers.
2: I really like that first insight about the idea of the. Politics of throwing somebody under the bus. I hadn't thought about that one. Um, so you also say uh, how much you enjoy unearthing insights. Mm-hmm. What would be, in Josh's mind, one of the secrets to unlocking insights for your brand?
0: I think the biggest thing about unlocking insights is that there are probably two or three factors in any given product category that are going to predict or determine the market leader, especially in new and emerging categories, there are a few factors around whether the category is going to be adopted or not. There's going to be a few category, uh, a few um, things that matter around what types of associations people want to have with products in that category, and then there's uh, a few insights about how to create awareness and salience as quickly as you can, and. All the metrics that we have, all the tools that we have, the eye charts of, you know, hundreds of thousands of options that we have as, as, you know, marketers, it comes down to two or three major insights about the consumer in a category that that matter. And if you understand those three insights or four insights or whatever they might be for your product or category, then everything else becomes so much easier to to plan out to execute on and to stay the course from a brand perspective
2: it strikes me though that some of these customers are the same customers for the same people in the same category and and how does one sort of bank on an insight what how do you determine which are the three which count the most because it it can become a little bit well the, the highest person in the room's opinion it can also because well you know yesterday i saw this mm-hmm. so it's an anecdote And, uh, you know, sometimes the data you can read into it, whatever you want.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the dangers with with metrics in today's world is that, you know, a little bit can be dangerous. And so uh, I can go and get you any numbers to support whatever argument you want to make. If you want to say the customer likes, you know, red, I can find that if you want to say that they prefer blue, I can find that as well. But when you're looking at things broadly enough, so for example, if you ask not only what customers care about when it comes to what your product or service provides, but if you also ask those things about your competitor, you find that 95% of the things that customers like about your brand, they like about your competitor as well. And so, you know, starting... By measuring kind of broadly enough, or looking at enough, uh, looking at the category or the opportunity, um, you know, in that broad enough perspective, that's the first thing. The other thing is really to have enough empathy for the for the consumer. Um, understanding what your key performance indicators are going to be from a brand perspective is a really difficult thing to do because you know what do you what you're trying to optimize for is not going to be the same for every product or category. And so, first, trying to figure out what you know, what a consumer wants from a product or category, and then and then picking out how to, you know, the right metrics to optimize around that. Uh, Those are very difficult things to do. uh, Especially when there's so many different options in today's landscape.
2: So you've got this great web series, which has a great production value. I love your energy. It's it's punchy and energetic. Uh, I was wondering just from a sort of a back, back behind the scenes kind of sort of story, mm-hmm. what have you gleaned from the making of your series? And I'm thinking more about like, well, the numbers behind and showed that this works better than that, or this subject is hot and this subject isn't. Well, anything you can tell us? And I may have <laughs> kidnapped you in this question.
0: I think our series is. Proof that the argument that we're making is is, uh, is the right one, and that is that brand awareness and being top of mind is, you know, they're the two most important factors for brand growth. We are a small provider. We are a, you know, boutique provider, and yet because of the show that we produce, we are very well connected on LinkedIn. We are able to meet with Incredible leaders from you know fortune 100 brands were able to uh, put our opinions out there in a way that uh, That Google for some reason thinks is impressive enough to let us rank well for when it comes to you know uh, Search terms and ideas that people really care about that that uh, that we can help them with and so I think the biggest thing that we've realized with this show is that you know every brand can create awareness and uh, have that be a a strong part of their growth.
2: And so you're free not to answer this question, but did you research what Google Analytics could provide for you as a a space that you wanted to fill on Google? In other words, that you knew that this term, because you're an expert in SEO as well, was a spot. And if so, do you think that's a strategy that companies could be deploying for themselves?
0: Yeah, this is one of the most misunderstood opportunities in all of branding. All of the numbers that I've ever seen shows that, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, either a last click attribution model, a multi click attribution model, or a clickless attribution model in a media mix model, the things that you're going to see for brands is that the there are two things that grow brands two channels that grow brands more quickly than anything else. It's typically, typically going to be a company's blog and, it, and also their non-branded paid search efforts. And what I mean by non-branded is that you have search terms and queries that do not include the brand name itself. And so if I were just searching for adhesive bandages versus band-aids, adhesive bandages would be a non-branded term um and so those two channels drive brand the most and it's because you are able to show up for kind of the category level terms that consumers are searching for before they know about brands in that category and and all of the research has shown that you know salience is the most important driver of brand growth and so that's kind of this combination of both awareness and top of mind consideration when 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 thinking about a brand and so the you know the the big opportunity I think for for everybody for every marketer is to understand what is that category that they're in and how do you show up for those non branded terms so that you can build the brand as quickly as possible and back to the first part of that question you know, do we plan our shows? Do we plan our content around any sort of, you know, keyword space? And the answer is absolutely yes. As an SEO, we rank for a lot of terms that include uh, the word branding, um, you know, brand building, brand position, brand awareness, brand growth, because a lot of the people who are thought leaders around branding uh, are just simply not good at SEO. And so uh, that's a different an advantage that we've kind of seen there and uh, it's worked in, in uh, our favor so far.
2: Maybe I need to talk off off (laughs) mic and get some advice. Um, (laughs) How much of that presence is also triggered by or aided, abetted with SEM search engine marketing and, and buying of keywords in let's say the branding space. In other words, you've got great SEO, good blog, great content, that's non-brand specific at least you're not you know plugging you you're plugging the real content that people are looking for
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's um you know we're a bootstrap brand so we're not spending you know tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on paid media we're mostly a inbound marketing focused organization when it comes to growth however there are always bright spots particularly uh when it comes to seo not everything's going to be you know um a, a a wild success sometimes you're going to have minor successes sometimes you're going to have duds the things that pay off really well organically those are the things that we tend to try to leverage in paid media the most and so for example we have a you know a 24 tips to grow brand awareness it's like 6000 plus words we've got all sorts of industry professionals that have contributed to it it's a very popular blog post, and we've turned it into a PDF and put it behind an email gate and now bid on the term brand awareness, and we can get email signups for less than a dollar. And you know, some of those people are growing their personal brands, some of those people are not ever going to grow a brand, but a small handful of those people are working for B2C venture-backed startups who are looking to you know, leverage a large sum of investment that they just got to grow the company very, very quickly. And that's when they call Josh Bratton. Hopefully, yeah, exactly. uh, So there's
2: a funnel there. And and part of that is the insights, you you send stuff out, you see what sticks, once you know it sticks, then you then you know how to repurpose it and then create a, a further funnel that leads, hopefully back down to you not necessarily all of them, as you said, but at least one or two. And that will then become a return on investment that's worthwhile.
0: Yeah. And I think about it like a funnel. But even then we're starting to get away from the the actual human impact of this type of work. What it does is actually create empathy between my corporate brand and a potential brand that I want to work with. It helps people understand that, you know, there's a there are actual people with thoughts, uh, and and opinions and the desire to help them, empathy, that type of thing, right? And those are the types of things that actually help your conversion rates. It's feeling like a brand's gonna support you and that you're gonna get the, the promised experience that's there, right? So I think uh, those are kind of the, the more profound impacts that we're seeing versus just looking explicitly at, you mm-hmm. know, the funnel mechanics or sure. metrics at every level
2: still i mean right right there's a mad there's a method to the madness and of course you know empathy is a good old word for me i'm on board um you are also enthusiastic about a futuristic tech so we're into 2020 deep into it now uh what would you say is on the radar over the next 12 to 18 months in terms of futuristic tech
0: yeah i think it's Interesting because I've been wrong about this before. I mm. I walked around with Google Glass on my face for the better part of a year. Just you felt really dorkish. <laughs> I did, but I really, I mean, I was such a proponent uh, of that technology that I was I was willing to take the flack of of society uh, to hopefully you know uh, convince people that they you know that this was going to be a thing. Turns out people are just really turned off. By putting a computer between your face and another face, that's just something at a biological level that we're not programmed to to accept, and so we're not there yet. Um, but I, I think what you are seeing is that, especially to retains or pertains to augmented reality, is we're getting closer. Uh, the The types of opportunities that we have for heads up displays are getting smaller and smaller, and I think you know once. Once that technology becomes small enough um, to become unobtrusive, then it's going to start to uh, really start to proliferate a lot. On the other side, too, you have advertisers that are looking for ways to um, to leverage augmented reality more and more. I think that is a telltale sign that, uh, that consumer adoption is going to follow. You know, when you have companies throwing money into something that's usually a sign that either it's, you know, it's going to work or they're going to make it work. And so uh, Facebook, for example, they've just recently uh, with their spark AR platform have created the opportunity for anybody to create augmented reality, instant experience ads. And so um, they use, for example, a, a lipstick Manufacturer, as an example, and it is uh, great. You take your phone, uh, you take, you're on Facebook, you see this ad, you click on it. The next thing you know, it's got a camera that faces you. The lipstick is projected onto your lips, and as a consumer, you can purchase that lipstick uh, directly from Facebook, or you know, within a click or two um, from that retailer. And those are the types of things that we we've known that through you know our through through um, uh, research in neuroscience, that that mirror neuron effect of of actually being able to project ourselves into that that commercial experience, that's one of the biggest things that triggers a, a purchase. And so, I think that's where you're really going to start to see augmented reality take off is when advertisers are able to produce high converting experiences that that drive return on ad spend.
2: Well, since I have presumably many people who are listening who worked in and out of cosmetics as I worked there for 16 years, I'm sure that they'll be interested. I'll want to send them the, show, the in the show notes the link to that so they can go and check out what you're talking about. It seems to me, though, I mean, AR, amongst others, it's been around for, long, for a long time, we've been talking about it. And maybe at the beginning, it was sort of a, too much of a 2D experience. And you really knew that there was a sort of redness on a screen that you were more or less in and it kind of it kind of followed you wasn't always there with you when you were talking. Maybe the technology is also getting better.
0: Yeah, it totally is. I mean, you look at um, even the first level of uh, kind of smart glasses with Google Glass, for example. They were large, they were clunky. The projection technology was was uh, you know it was it was novel, but it wasn't necessarily fantastic. Um, as as time goes on, you're seeing companies like Microsoft and new startups starting to invest more and more into this technology, and they're kind of removing the kinks and making it. Um, I think the biggest thing is smaller. Um the 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 smaller a device gets the more likely you are to see adoption. I think one of the perfect examples of that is the idea of um you know wireless earbuds. They are really nothing more than, you know, a glorified, you know, bluetooth headset. Um you know for the longest time a bluetooth kind of earpiece, you know, is has been always I don't know. There's, there's been like these pejorative connotations with it. That person's kind of a, a weirdo, you know, maybe they're obnoxious because, you know, just use your phone like a normal person kind of, there's always been something. I don't necessarily have that opinion myself, but, but there's been that kind of undertone I think. And, and the same has been true, um, for Google Glass. But I think once Apple made that form factor small enough all of a sudden it was acceptable and cool and people no longer had that kind of standoffishness for the category they're willing to really experience the benefits um when that happens then i think you know tech, new technologies really take off
2: yeah and of course you also need to get the performance I wanted to talk about one more thing josh which is um and and it's awfully interesting and completely off the beaten path but we'll get back to it i mean hopefully the, the path that is sure. um which was your experience of setting up a super pack so for the for most of the world uh, in america it's rather well known and i must say rather connoted it it doesn't inspire in me a number of things so i saw that i was like what Uh uh-oh when i first came into the idea so Explain to people who may not understand what is uh, a super PAC, what is super PAC, and probably you can probably guess what my uh-oh feeling was, and then layer into it the story that you went through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So since 2010 in the United States, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that through Citizens United that corporations were now people. And so um, corporations could contribute to elections, corporations could effectively pay uh, to you know, lobby for particular candidates or or issues, and but pe- corporations couldn't vote yet. Please, uh, well, <laughs> if if by you know literally voting in the in the polls, no, that's not uh, allowed. But not with yet. their dollars, absolutely, it's happening, and so, um, you know, and that's that's the law of the land right now. And um, you know, at the time, I was very much interested in the rollback of the net neutrality regulations that had passed in the United States in 2015 and were now being rolled back in 2016, 2017 timeframe. I looked at what I might be able to do as a private citizen and found that, well, if you, you know, can't beat them, join them type of thing. And so I looked into super PACs. I spent a lot of time on fec.gov, our federal elections commission, and and um, found that you just really needed to file some paperwork and start a bank account and anybody, you too could form a super PAC. And the idea was that we were going to start a, you know, an organization that, that, uh, functioned a lot like a nonprofit, but would be this special type of entity, a super PAC that could advocate for net neutrality from a grassroots perspective. And I found that it was very easy to, to get things rolling. It was very easy to, to kind of create that brand. And I was just surprised at how how easy it all was for these large companies to kind of hijack the political process uh, here in the United States with these perfectly legal um, you know, opportunities.
2: But so the super PAC, if, for those who don't know it, is a sort of this money in with the 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 sort of image it is is a sort of it's big money, it's rather conservative, and it's very political.
0: Yeah, and I think there are a lot more people that that could tell you the particulars about the finances. From what I've seen, is that it's been a good vehicle for people with deep pockets to kind of get, um, get their, their way politically. Um, what our own experience is that from a grassroots perspective, it's been very difficult to, to find large sums of money, right? Because if you're a company, you can, you know, you can, you know, uh, designate a fund or you can spend money, you know, in large chunks to kind of from your bank account. (laughs) Oh yeah. Or, you know, through your, through your, uh, C-suite or through your shareholders or something like that. But as a, you know as a grassroots organization, you're talking about five, ten, fifteen dollar checks. Crowdfunding, uh, yeah, crowdfunding, and it, and it becomes um, a much harder thing to do.
2: And what did you learn from the exercise other than the fact that it's hard to do, which I obviously understand? But did you learn about anything that was useful or uh, could be important? imported into business as a, as a concept or something that helps, let's say, if I want to get grassroots, uh, more successful, for example.
0: Oh boy. Uh, I learned a lot of things. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that was the most profound for me, and this is something that I struggle with how to, how to, how to interpret it is that, uh, it's, it's not, it's more important about how people feel than what the facts are. And I think for a lot of people who are looking at the you know, political issues of today, they're stuck on objectively what are the outcomes or what is the law or what does the rule say? And those are important things. But when it comes down to how people actually vote, how they buy, it, it's more important how they feel. And so if you want to change people's opinions and how they behave, uh, there's really – you know there's two ways of doing it there's well if you just educate people on 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 how to how to go about doing things then that's um you're gonna only get so far but if you can if you can interpret how they feel about things along the way you're gonna be a lot more successful because uh it um it, it's gonna go a lot further
2: well that is most translatable so the the interpretation i make of what you just said josh was especially when we're talking about the insights before, if you can dig in on how customers feel about the experience, about their needs and issues, about how they enjoy the product and and what it makes them feel like when they're talking about it to their friends and so on. In in that space of emotions around it, get the empathy to drive into those insights, then you're going to change people's minds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we have all the metrics that we that we need in the world today. But the biggest challenge is to use those metrics to figure out how consumers feel. And those don't always, you know, it's apples and oranges sometimes, and that's a big challenge. Beautiful. Josh,
2: how can someone who's enjoyed listening to this, because that's assumed they're the ones we want, um, would we'll get in touch with you and, or track you down, find about your series, give us some links, and then I'll put them in the show notes.
0: Absolutely. So you can find us at brandishinsights.com. You can also find me personally, JL Broughton on Twitter or Josh Broughton on LinkedIn.
2: Fabulous. Wunderbar. Many thanks, Josh, for coming on and sharing your insights and uh, and your passion. Thanks for having me, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, to give a rating and review and to finish here's a song i wrote with stephanie singer a convinced man